You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends, to another edition of the Film Literature and the New World Order podcast for September 2016. And as promised, this month we're going to be examining that cinematic masterpiece, The Purge, election year, from writer-director James DeMonaco. And this is the third in the Purge trilogy. Now, I usually uh, subtly chastise the listeners of this podcast that if you haven't yet watched the movie or read the book, you should do so before listening to the conversation. I will revoke that uh, particular exhortation for this edition of the podcast, because if you haven't seen this movie yet, don't bother. And I don't just say that because it is a poorly put together and pretty boring movie, but for deeper reasons that I hope we'll get into in this conversation. But for today's conversation, we have our old friend James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com on board. James, thank you for joining us for this. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me bring another piece of trash culture to dissect. <laughs> yeah, well, since our Citizen Kane conversation, our uh, FLNW choices have been going downhill, haven't they? Well, that's, of course, not the point. We're not here to only to look at the greatest works of literature and film. We're looking at, of course, propaganda narratives and how they influence uh, reality, or how reality is influenced by them, or... Art mirroring life, mirroring art. Uh, so let's get into this turgid piece of trash. It is not a, a very exciting movie, but it is obviously interesting coming in an election year and talking about this purge. Now, for people out there who haven't seen this movie or people like myself who haven't seen the first two movies in this trilogy, can you tell us what is the story of The Purge? I can. So, and we'll, I've got some links and things that we can include in the show notes. It's basically, even as Wikipedia would tell you, it's a not too distant future dystopic film where some new government called the New Founding Fathers of America, and it's a little murky as to what happened in America that caused the rise of sort of this new political party and class. But once every is it once every year? Yeah, every year they do a 12-hour period where all crime, including murder, is legal. All emergency services are suspended and people can do whatever they want for this 12-hour period. That's the exact premise of all three of the films. And honestly, James, you you watched the worst one. The third one, I, I watched all three of them. The third one, even as being a, you know sci-fi junk horror fan for a long time which is like oh it's not actually even that good a film the as is generally the case the first one is the best one so i've they, heard so i've yeah. heard so the idea they, here is anarchy of course the way it is usually portrayed as chaos blood huh? and violence um, for a 12-hour period once a year and this version this one takes place i believe a couple of decades after the first one so it's a little bit further in that not so distant future where one of the survivor yeah survivors of one of the previous purge whose parents were murdered in the first purge has mm -hmm. grown up and is now a senator or uh, and uh is running against one of these nffa candidates in a key election now of course we are here in 2016 obviously looking at the current selection circus, and I think it is probably no coincidence that the Purge election year was released in an election year, and features candidates that, can we say, 
somehow kind of reflect what we've ultimately ended up here with, at least the Hollywood version of that, yeah. that you have, you know, the, 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 the sort of cartoonish, ridiculous, violent right winger versus this crusading blonde haired, plucky left, established, uh, left, uh, woman who's going to, you know, save everyone. Something along those lines. Uh, how much of this do you think was intentionally modeled after the election that we're seeing right now? I, well, I think that's what's interesting. So all three films were written and directed by the same guy named James DeMonico. And that at least, fortunately for me, that brings it some level of sort of authorship that at least it's like, OK, this is this is at least a smaller amount of people's story plot instead of something that changes hands from a million different writers and directors. At least I know that it's like, well, it's coming from this guy. Uh, do you know actually what the subtitle of the second movie is called? Anarchy? Okay, yeah, it is. It's called Anarchy. That's <laughs> so. The first one's just the Purge. The second one was called the Purge Anarchy, and the one that came out this summer was the Purge Election Year. I think they're able to probably bust these out so quickly, and maybe they, of course, knew they they're not coming out every year. They're kind of putting them out every every couple of years. They of course knew that this was going to land in a in an election year. What I find interesting, and I've got notes for kind of all three films. And I don't know it's the name that carries over into the third film, but in the very first film and to the second, it's Donald Talbot is the leader in at least the second film, Anarchy. So you can look at the names and see the stuff. And, of course, as you said, the the plucky, blonde-haired crusader with silly glasses (laughs) in the third film, I think they have to know. And I think it's the, the artist's... I think they're looking at what goes on in the world and they're kind of interpreting in some way. If you can look and you can kind of check out the, you know, who produced the movie, who wrote the movie, it's dudes who make horror and action films that don't cost a ton of money but make just enough money to that it makes sense that they continue to make them. It's a profitable venture. Even uh, it was if it's produced movie by Michael big. Bay, amongst others. That's it. That there Michael Bay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely obviously meant to make money, and it did. It succeeded. On a $10 million budget, it has grossed worldwide over $100 million. So I'm assuming there will be more uh, additions to this increasingly inaccurately named trilogy in the future. <laughs> but uh, before that, let's let's take a look at this, this uh, piece of propaganda, predictive programming. Um, now, obviously, I think the interesting part of this, the, the most obviously interesting part of this, is that you and I have been talking about this summer of rage, the political violence, the kind of ramping up of the divide in American society generally during the selection cycle, and where this is heading in terms of blood on the streets, whether literal or or just an increase in sort of the, uh, the the rhetoric certainly we are seeing a wedge being driven further and further and this film seems to be at least the uh yeah there's a sort of cartoon hollywood version of where that leads um now let's talk about that in the in the context of this um this selection cycle and the the types of issues that are driving the wedge between people is a movie like this intended to make people stop and reflect on that wedge that's being driven and where that can lead? Or do you think it is part of a self-fulfilling prophecy that feeds into the the violence and the hatred? I think probably from from the creative standpoint, they are trying to make a comment about society while making a you know fun, loud rock and roll horror film that they probably grew up enjoying. As you go further up the chain, though, to the 
handful of corporations that run and everything. And again, this is a Michael Bay produced film distributed by Universal Pictures. It's by no means kind of a plucky, you know, gritty, you know, indie film that would play in an art house. This is playing in the popcorn mall kind of places. Uh, I don't know. It's it's tough to sort of speculate about it, man, because, you know, I've been talking like I've talked about it a lot this year. I looked at it because I knew it was coming out. And I think I've looked at it as this might be one of those sort of key predictive programming kind of films. So to one, answer your question, I think from the creative standpoint, they just want to make a picture that maybe makes people think, as all sci-fi and horror is some kind of analogy for, for something else. But as you go higher up, the powers that shouldn't be do want to seed ideas of violence. And all you got to do is look at leaked emails and see who funds what kind of organizations – and that's what's interesting through the course of the film. So, if I may, the the first film is really almost like Straw Dogs, which is a Samuel Peckinpah film from the 70s with Dustin Hoffman. It's basically a – and Samuel Peckinpah is a pretty, like, man's man, violent filmmaker. He made Wild Bunch, one of the most sort of violent westerns. He makes this film about sort of a New York intellectual – and his wife, who go back to live in her Scottish podunk town and kind of retire. He's probably made some money off a book or whatever. They get back there, and her old redneck cronies start sniffing around, and it comes to not only home invasion but sexual assault and rape. And it's a story of pacifism and how far can you push someone who would maintain you know, some sort of idealism of nonviolence. And Straw Dogs, I think, was powerful because it's in the 70s and you're post Nixon in Vietnam and all of those things are kind of coming out in the, in the films. The very first Purge film stars Ethan Hawke, who I, I've liked as an actor through the years. I think he always kind of does interesting work. I know he comes from a theater background, which I tend to give more respect to actors who I know can go out on a stage and actually do it and not just do it in front of a camera for five seconds. But the first Purge film is essentially... Ethan Hawke is a guy who made a lot of money creating home security systems to guard against the purge. And the films, even from the very beginning, there's never been sort of an origin story, much like in horror films and zombie films. You begin in the middle of the world that has some new chaotic thing like a zombie apocalypse or in this case, the purge. In the first film, Ethan Hawke's a guy who sells home security systems, and as the purge is coming that night, he knows he and his family are safe because they've got the big security system that he himself created and installed. Of course, that's going to break down. People get in, and it comes to how far can you push a guy who doesn't, doesn't want to take part in the purge but isn't necessarily against it either. And those are themes that they explore throughout the rest of, of the series of people who are pro-purge and believe it's actually a part of this new America and that bloodshed and purging these feelings from yourself. It gets, it gets quite possibly satanic to a point. And I can mention that in some, of my, in some of my links and notes as well. But it went from being kind of a story about a home invasion, kind of a panic room thing, and they keep pulling the story out. So the second film, Anarchy, really goes to the streets and is maybe arguably the best film of the three because you then see the people who are the targets of the purge. And who are they? 
poor people on the streets. And you start to learn during the purge there becomes organized gangs of militant white people who are affiliated with the new founding fathers of America who love the purge, who use the opportunity to go kill poor people of color basically in the streets. So there's this resistance that starts to form. And that's, you know, you're getting into classic kind of, you know, hero literature stuff there in the second film as this sort of underground resistance grows, which then sets the stage and some of the characters do come back. You know, you can jump in at any point as you did. Some of the characters return. Some of them don't. We've never actually seen Senator Roan in this third film in any of the previous films. But the way the second leads into the third, you know that this resistance from the underground bubbles up to the point to where that plucky progressive senator who wants to run for president for one reason and one reason only to get rid of the purge. So then that's the third film. And it goes almost sort of it sort of goes from the home to the streets to the government is sort of the trajectory of the three films. Right. And I, I mean, there's, there's something in that progression itself. I mean, that's the progression mm-hmm. of politics, right? I mean, it starts with home and family, and then you have to interact with people around you, and then you have to find a way to organize it all. And of course, what way to do that other than through government? And that is an interesting aspect of this, is that clearly the NFFA, the New Founding Fathers of America, um, it's part of the, the, the purge is part of what keeps them in power. It's part of what they, they do. It's part of what they, uh, is their founding ideology, obviously. And it is used clearly as a way to pit people against each other for the benefit of the political party. And, uh, and you, you mentioned some of the, uh, I mean, the, the sort of satanic aspects of that, which are quite clearly, uh, manifested in the fact that uh, these high-ranking NFFA people go to this church and sacrifice people in the church as part of their ritual. Again, an interesting aspect of this. Um, here's my problem with this, though, because, I mean, and again, yes, let's take it as seriously as I think it's meant to be taken at all, but the ostensible message that we get from this, ostensibly, is that, you know, obviously this this violence is not the answer. It's really just a, a way to keep the oppressed people oppressed and keep them fighting with each other and avoid, you know, the, the, the powers that shouldn't be. A message that we generally can agree with, right? But it's the same sort of phenomenon with the fact that there's no such thing as an anti-war movie. Because even Platoon or whatever, you see it and you want to go out and napalm children a- afterwards because, hey, it's so sexy, it's cool, it's Hollywood. They, they put it in front of you. And they put it in front of you and then say, yeah, but you don't want that. But you've just spent an hour and a half or two hours or whatever it is with your mindset invested in uh, taking in all this imagery. It's the same thing with a anti-violence violence movie like this, showing all the blood and gore and the, the cool sexiness of all of this mayhem. And then, yeah, but we don't really want that, right? Um, and I think that's, I mean, it, it puts out this idea, even the name Purge is... This idea of, yeah, it's something you don't like, it's something that's not comfortable, but you go through it and you're purified, you're better, right? Even in the name of it, 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 it glorifies it in a certain way. And that's what I dislike about this type of movie, intensely so, is that even if it pretends ostensibly to be against it, it is at least presenting it to the audience and putting it in their consciousness that, you know, this is, 
this is what uh, the, the government system is about. This is what we have to do in order to keep those other people down. And uh, I, again, I mean, I know it's ostensibly going against that, but it really does implant that idea in the viewer. I think you can make the argument, and this is something Cassie and I talk about at home a lot, just in our media discussions. You can make the argument pretty well that all film is exploitation. I think some noted film critics have said that. No matter how it's done or what your intentions may be, perhaps the very format and medium of it now, as as we now know it, just means it's all going to be exploitation. So a film like this, I think, as you're saying, it leads to asking the government for more help in a way. It's still leading back to that police state. It's still leading yeah. back to the state yeah, as yeah, yeah, the yeah. cause of – Yeah, I mean even in the logic of the film, what is the thing that saves the, saves the day at the end? It's an election, and you select the right candidate, and, you know, oh, it's all going to be better. And how do they do that? The new president is going to uh, use an executive action to, uh, to do this. So by executive action, some president can come in and say, okay, you can kill whoever you want one, one day a year. And then another president can come in and say, no, we're not going to do that anymore, which, I mean, it's just the worst kind of statist propaganda because then it's like, oh, you know, you better vote. Your vote is the most important thing you can possibly do. It will be literally the difference between life and death for you and your family. <laughs> I, I've got a lot of other sort of notes and bits. I don't know if you've got other kind of angles that you want to take Go this. Go for it. Um, I can kind of throw things out and you can say, oh, I noticed that or you don't care or move along or did you catch the, the purge happens on the same date every year? Yes, March something, May. It, I can't it starts. It starts in the evening. It sort of it goes overnight. I think yeah. it sort of goes from six p.m. to six a.m. So it goes from one date to the next. Those dates are March twenty-first into March twenty-second. Sounds which, like a spring uh, equinox to me. Or three two two for ah. a Scott's number. And again, there's a lot of initiation and a lot of that symbolism in these movies. Uh, and and as you noted, actually, at the end of, of the most recent film, that, it, that voting is the solution to everything. Senator Roan, our hero, wins, who's going to abolish the purge. And as the film starts to sort of fade to black, you'll hear news clips and blips. But there's unrest and riots in the streets and the new founding fathers are unhappy with Senator Roan. And that's how the film sort of ends. Right. And that, to me, is the most insidious part of the potential predictive programming of this, because that is where I see this selection cycle going, one way or another, that, uh, you know, Hillary gets selected, and there's going to be a wide select, uh, swath of the public who are going to be very angry, and who are, already, who are being primed, not just through this movie, obviously, in a lot of different ways, for rioting and violence and... You know, something next. That's why I think this is so potentially dangerous. And I wonder, though, if if simply this is a film that gets, if if not targeted, but probably seen by people who are going to be mad when Hillary wins. That plays into the divide and conquer. That plays into, oh, did you hear somebody got punched out at a Trump rally the other day? All of those stories that have been seeded in the media. Again, which I've kind of seen this film as a, just some sort of touchstone in a way yeah but this uh, video i mean this this movie if anything seems to be from the like the hillary perspective 
I mean, it's the, the blonde yeah. progressive who's going to save the day and <laughs> against these evil right-wingers. So, I mean, that just exacerbates the, the sort of tension that's already there. It does. It, it does. Uh, in the first two films, I don't know that it does it in the third. You'll kind of hear, and again, this is what can be enjoyable about seeing a film series is how they'll sort of expand on the world and do the same thing again but change it a little bit you know it's the same reason we enjoy new albums by bands we like it's like oh, it's them but it's a little bit different they mention in again some of the montage elements in the very first film you'll hear unemployment stands at one percent and then in the sequel in anarchy you'll actually hear him go and unemployment stands at five percent Already given, like, okay, well, things are starting to crumble a little bit. I, if they did it in the third film, I, I didn't catch it. There's a part of the second film, again, as we sort of hit the streets, this is where it first explores, as it goes into in the third film, of, of a lot of black-on-black violence and crime. In the second film, a lot of the iconography is of sort of old school blacks in voodoo face paint in the posters and the graphic design for the second film. Whereas in this latest one, it's sort of a neon evil looking, uh, statue of Liberty kind of mask that's glowing. So again, of course, you know, each film gets its own little graphic design stamp, but the sort of voodoo element of the second film gets into where they realize what's happening with the purge and that people want slaves to shoot in a sort of most dangerous game kind of fashion eyes wide shut weird ceremonies they're now underground factions that basically get slaves and it's again black on black crime getting slaves to be given to the purgers to use on purge night and that's sort of an element that the second film starts to expose and it also has Neo kind of Black Panther group that actually saves our heroes in the second film from what they refer to as those rich bitches. So then the yeah. third film, the underground kind of hits the mainstream and there's elements where you suddenly, you know, there's scenes where they say, you know, oh, you're the you're the guy you're the you're from the resistance. So it follows those kind of classic ways. And you could see. So they in the third film. It could there could be a sequel. There might not be. Who knows? We, you know, kind of cliffhanger it either way. It sort of it ends or it doesn't. It makes sense as the third film introduces what they refer to as. And again, I've, you know, you hear these phrases and I kind of make notes and go, oh, that's you know, those are powerful words. Murder tourism is what it introduces. So in the third film. Much like you bring to it as a viewer by the third time around, you're bringing more awareness to it. So by the third time around in the film, people from around the world are starting to hear about the purge. So there is murder tourism of people coming to America just to take part in the purge on this time. So it brings in a sort of international element. And some of the words you'll hear them. I think they say this isn't a drill twice in this film. It's got technological things like using an iPhone to detonate a bomb as our hot sort of secret agent keeps our our senator safe through the whole movie. And it's those right. kind of classic yeah. tricks. And, and, and again, I mean, a part of this is the, the, the idea that we, all of us, you know, need to go through this violence and bloodletting and get it out of our system, you know, once a year. That's kind of the underlying idea of this, I assume, because we're all just bloodthirsty killers underneath. And the only thing protecting us from being this, you know, this crazy bloodletting society is this 
well, there's laws. <laughs> there's police, so I won't kill you. <laughs> if there wasn't police around, I would slash your throat and, you know, drink your blood. But, oh, you know. So if you, if you let that go for 12 hours, it's just going to be total chaos, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, is the bleakest view of humanity that you can have. Uh, that the, the only thing protecting us from each other is the government, basically. One of my notes just says, initiating normals into violence. And that's, I think, a lot of what the films are about. And that's what you could, again, make the pretty good case that a lot of popular media is now about that. Isn't it funny? The things I heard growing up as, you know, kind of a conservative kid that media is all evil and it's trying to pervert your mind. And you start to suddenly because as a kid, you say, oh, that's crazy. That can't be true. And now, 30 years later, I look at it and go. They were maybe more right than they knew. Obviously, the media now is demonstrably more graphic than we had ever seen before. And so that's, I mean, the easy thing, as you said, you know, you always recommend that people watch the films. This, yeah, this isn't anything for for the fainted heart by any stretch. And I think, you know, hopefully, James, again, what's the last thing you and I talked about here was Daredevil. And I, I wanted to talk about it because I found it's, you know, dark, violent, underbelly kind of important. It was like, this is mainstream culture, man. This is yeah. comic stuff that teenagers are seeing. Yeah. And I'm not calling for, you know, it should all be banned or any of that no, kind no, of No, of course not. But, but yeah, I mean, I just, uh, yeah, I'm just sick of this kind of dark violence glorification kind of thing, trend that's going on. And I just think it's probably best to, well, I would not have anything to do with it if we weren't doing a, <laughs> a series like this. But, uh-huh. yeah, watching it so you don't have to, maybe. Um, yeah. There's some of there's definitely there's definitely some of that. I think you're right. And this is something, again, this is conversations that, that we'll have at home. You know, you can make the question, why give it the attention in the first place? And that's valid. It is valid. And um, hopefully we will reach a point as a society where people won't care about movies like this and it will not affect them um, because they won't be watching them. That would be a wonderful society to live in. Um, I think, actually, I just, I think for, for me, I just didn't... Looking at this, I wanted to sort of talk about it and get it and get it out there because it feels like it has been sort of part of the zeitgeist, if you will. And and like I'm saying, there's sort of other elements in the third film of like Black Lives Matter and yeah. Black on Black Crime. And it's 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 right in there. It's one of those things that I think it it's not even necessarily for people who have seen the movie. I think it's the idea of it. And you hear about this thing. Oh, so there... Because I've heard about this movie series. I've never seen it before having watched this one for this uh, podcast. And it's just that thing. It's the idea. Oh, the you know, 12 hours a year, you kill anyone you want kind of thing. And oh, it's it's set in the election year this year. Oh, isn't that interesting? I think it's just the, that idea filtering through to the general consciousness of society um, and how that predictively programs people is perhaps even more impactful than the movie itself. Because, the, yeah, the, the people who go to see a movie like this are probably just looking for popcorn horror movie entertainment. And yes, mm-hmm. it is going to affect their consciousness, but not, not directly and not in an overt way. And it's not like people are going here to you know, decide what to do this election year. Um, I think it's more the, just the idea of this floating around in the zeitgeist that, uh, that catches people's imagination. And uh, some of the more unhinged people will be drawn to ideas like this and more susceptible to them. And again, I'm not saying that there's going to be a purge coming anytime soon um, in reality, but I am saying that the idea of violence as some sort of purification 
is an idea, it is a dangerous idea to be playing with because people will take that seriously. And I mean, what even our president has a Nobel Peace Prize, but from what I can tell, he's blowing up more countries than any of the guys before him. It is that normalization of violence that from the top all the way down. So does art imitate life, imitate politics? I think yes, yes, and yes. All right. I think that does it from my end. Any other notes you want to go through? I, You know, I have all kinds of other just sort of little interesting notes of things that struck me at the film. You get these sort of mercenaries, and you'll find they've got Confederate flag patches on their jackets, and then you see a close-up, and he's got the Nazi SS you know, tattoos on his face. So it brings in all of those things that, again, you know, as someone who works in media and has, I can tell, like, all those things go in there for a reason. So that's a great reason why I think we can take kind of hopefully a, a, a scholarly view, a, you know, of almost kind of film critic view at things that on surface might not seem worth it. But, uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll shoot you my links and other things if I if I find, you know, any, any, anything else that's worthy, I'll, I'll include in the show notes yeah. for you. Yeah, that's a good point. That's one of the uh, one of the themes that I saw they were definitely playing with was racial tension and that uh, that kind of thing. I didn't see so much of the gender divide, which is another kind of big political issue that's driving that wedge between people in the online outrage culture, which is mm-hmm. taking over from whatever political paradigm used to exist between left and right. It is becoming an online outrage culture. What can you be outraged about? There's, you know, the people who are on the SJW side who are outraged about this or that uh, offense. And then there are the people who are outraged about the SJWs. (laughs) And then it just feeds on itself in this cycle that spins off. And that's where this selection is really, that button is being pushed and the wedge is being driven. So I certainly saw some of the racial tension playing there. And as you mentioned um, it's, a, it's very much a kind of rich versus poor um, tension mm-hmm. that's, that's talked about here explicitly, of course, in the context of capitalism. Um, so there's clearly that kind of socialist slash Black Lives Matter kind of uh-huh. milieu uh-huh. that's being kind of played on here in the movie itself. One of the one of the scenes that sort of plays out throughout the film is a black shop owner who's obviously owned the, owned the, owned the convenience store on the block for a long, long time young thuggish black girls come in and starting to kind of beat the place up and start to shoplift. They get halted from shoplifting by our hero from the previous film who comes in and basically threatens to kick their butts. But when they leave, they threaten and of course promise that they will be back and I want my candy old man. And it becomes this sort of weird childlike thing. So classic generational fear of, Older generations are afraid the younger ones are going to wake up, yawn, and kill them. So this shop owner who's owned this store for a long time, one of the the lines he said that I I wrote down, this is the last thing I'll mention too. He said, hope can lead to a lot of letdown. Using the language of Obama and the Obama years as we sort of see the letdown and people feeling like they're now sort of justified to get their candy, old man. Yeah. A lot of yeah, a lot of interesting subtext here, playing on a lot of different divides and tensions in society, as they really exist, let alone as they exist in this movie world. All right, I think we'll leave it there. I'm interested to see comments from people in the crowd if anyone has seen this movie, or if you haven't, what your impressions of it are from the cultural zeitgeist. What have you picked up? Um, that's another interesting aspect of this, because as I say, that might be even more important than the actual propaganda in the movie itself, which 
you know, it made a lot of money, but not, not, it's not, uh, Star Wars or Jurassic Park or anything. <laughs> anyway, we'll leave this conversation for there. But before we do, for the two people in the audience who maybe don't know about yourself or your work, tell us about where they can find <laughs> what you do. <laughs> I was actually excited to hear if you were going to say what the next movie for the next month is. Um, or, or, or article or book or whatever it is. Um, hey, uh, I, I'm James Evan Pilato from MediaMonarchy.com. I've been doing it since 9-11-2005. There's been periods where I've made only a little bit of work because I was doing other sort of regular jobs. But long story short, last summer, 2015, I left my job at a commercial radio station where I ended up being a morning guy, but realized it wasn't the road I wanted to go down. I sort of relaunched Media Monarchy last fall and really in earnest at the turn of 2016, where now every day, Monday through Friday, I do two live shows a day. I do a morning news show called The Morning Monarchy, and I also do an hour-long DJ set, music being and, and radio being one of my main kind of backgrounds. And for me, it's really starting to get – it's what I want Media Monarchy more to be. So I think doing those two live shows a day and then also plugging in Good News Next Week and, of course, our long-running show, New World Next Week, it's the last eight, now nine-plus months of doing it has been more fulfilling than any of the years at commercial radio because this is what we're trying to build for ourselves That's and right. to be a kind of do hopefully what I'm what I'm good at and it, and it, you know it takes a while to get there we've both kind of been doing this for a long time and have gone through different ways and different avenues and you kind of hit on this is actually this is probably you know my strength i didn't call it media monarchy for nothing so <laughs> i appreciate you having me on again well, thank you, King Pilato, for joining us uh, for this conversation. <laughs> I do appreciate it. And let me just throw in my own plug. I listen to Morning Monarchy every day. It's a valuable source of news and information for me. So I hope it is for people out there who aren't uh, subscribed to that podcast yet. So uh, we'll leave it there. James, thanks for, thanks for your time today. Thanks, man. Take care. All right, we're going to leave it there for this month's edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. But as always, before setting your homework for next month, let's just go through some of the comments from the Corbett Report members left on the previous edition of this series, episode 37, Rambo 3, where we had Moxa 4 noting, The comparison of both movies, Rambo 3 and Charlie Wilson's War, to me was very interesting, and I remembered Adorno's oft-quoted sentence, There is no correct life in the wrong. If you don't know the whole history from the beginning, you would tend to agree with Stallone and or Wilson. But if you know how it started, you are unable to, you were, you were able to reveal they both had a propagandistic function too. And I think that is an important point to make, that once you accept the fundamental premises of an argument, it's very difficult to find the truth if those fundamental premises are flawed. And so, for example, in the Afghan war, if you just take the mainstream narrative of how that war came about and what its real objectives were and who was really behind it, then... There's really, yeah, you just, there's nothing you can say that won't be tinged with that propaganda, exactly as uh, Rambo 3 is. Uh, B. Gree wrote, Bless you, James, for slogging through this tripe Rambo 3. I thought my head was going to explode from the sheer stupidity of it. Hard to believe I used to enjoy stuff like that. It's amazing how your tastes change in your choice of entertainment as you get older. Uh, that's an interesting point for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, yes, it is, I imagine, quite true for most people that uh, when, as you get older, your tastes change and hopefully mature. And uh, the popcorn fare that entertained you in your youth is not quite so entertaining anymore. But I think 
even more than that, I think there is a progression of media literacy that has allowed more more complex narratives to be uh, to be the standard fare. Uh, back in the I mean the eighties when I was growing up, and it was Commando and Rambo and these kinds of really really quite basic films with very basic plots and very standard action fare. Um, that has given way to more complex storylines. I mean, if you look at the Mission Impossible series or the Bourne Identity series or things like that, I, I don't want to put them up there. I don't. I think they still serve various propagandistic purposes and are very little but popcorn entertainment. But at any rate, they do have more nuanced and more multi-layered stories. And I wonder if there is a progression that goes on there, so that we are now at least able to to uh, to sit through more more complex stories. I, I don't know if that's true. Maybe look at Michael Bay for a counterexample of that. Maybe the explosions are just more explosive. <laughs> but at any rate, I think there is some sort of change that goes on, and perhaps we can examine that in more detail in a future episode of this series. Finally, Voltaic Dude wrote, uh, the most important point about your analysis is that every mainstream story or narrative must always be understood to be a probable pur purposeful or inadvertent delivery of disinformation. And thank you for pointing that out, Voltaic Dude. That was really the point that I was trying to drive at here, is that I don't even believe that Rambo 3, or even probably the majority of the Hollywood schlock that is used to propagandize the public, is intentionally and consciously propagandistic. I would imagine that the vast majority of these stories are put out there by creative people, storytellers, who have so completely internalized the the mainstream narratives of the the propaganda opinion setters that they don't even realize that what they are doing is propagating mis misinformation disinformation um, and I, I I don't know I mean I suppose we could examine that on a case by case basis as we do in this series, but it's just my overall impression that probably not the majority of, of work that's out there in Hollywood or in other forms of pop culture entertainment are for that specific purpose, so much as they are steeped in a milieu where there are a few people who set the, the opinions and the, the official history and the official understanding of what we're living through, and that becomes the basis for all these stories. So kind of like Moxifor was pointing out, well, there is no correct life in the wrong. Um, now that's, again, that's another interesting thing to think about, the fact that so much propaganda is just inadvertently propagated. In fact, that was the entire basis of Operation Mockingbird. Of course, that was in the journalistic realm, but uh, I, th I imagine that the same thing applies in Hollywood and other pop culture industries. Anyway, let's close up the book on Rambo 3, and uh, I'm looking forward, of course, to your comments on The Purge and anything that you wanted to point out about what we discussed or what we didn't discuss today or any other propaganda vectors or narratives that you want to talk about and flesh out. Of course, that is always open for the, uh, the Corporate Report members to sign in to the website and leave your comments right there on the page. And I will go through some of those comments next month. And speaking of next month, as always, your assignment for next month. Next month, we are going to be examining the 1979 film Being There, directed by Hal Ashby and starring Peter Sellers. Hope you can join me. Talk to you later. Hello, friends. James Corbett here in the sunny climes or the overcast climes of western Japan, growing out my beard as for the winter as the weather starts 
to turn from the unbearable heat of the summer into something a little more bearable, I hope. And I'm just out and about today and wanted to uh, remind you, in case you hadn't heard yet, that I am on Patreon now. I know I get a lot of emails from people who don't do PayPal, and I'm 100% on board with that. If you do not have a PayPal account, please don't sign up for one just to become a Corbett Report member. Of course, the best way to become a Corbett Report member and evade all of these systems is to go through Bitcoin. But since nobody goes through Bitcoin, or very, very, very few people, then I have just set up a Patreon account, patreon.com slash Corbett Report, where again, you can pledge as little as $1 a month and become a member of the Corbett Report website. That'll give you a login so that you can log into the website and you can leave comments and you can access the weekly subscriber newsletter. And once again, this media is brought to you by you. And I couldn't do it without all the people out there who are pledging their support. I do need your support to continue doing this work. So anything is appreciated as little as $1 a month. So anyway, thank you all for all of your support out there, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon.